0: Trump says sometimes you have to walk.
1: Basically, uh, they wanted the sanctions lifted in their entirety and we
0: couldn't do that. So what's next for the US and Kim Jong-un? Also today, it's kicking off in Kashmir. What's the story with Diego Garcia? And why the Red Cross is helping train future army officers? President Trump and Kim Jong-un have said no deal this time on nuclear warheads. The summit in the Vietnamese capital Hanoi came to an end when neither side could meet the other's demands.
1: Basically uh, they wanted the sanctions lifted in their entirety and we couldn't do that. They were willing to denuke a large portion of the areas that we wanted but we couldn't give up all of the sanctions for that so we continue to work and we'll see but we had to. Uh, walk away from that particular suggestion.
0: Well, I'm joined by Professor Robert Kelly of Pusan University in South Korea, Professor Michael Stathis from the University of Southern Utah in the US, and of course our own defense analyst Christopher Lee. Hello everyone. Now the talks came to an obvious standstill. North Korea wanted all the sanctions lifted. The United States refused to lift them. Professor Kelly, didn't both sides know what was going to happen?
2: Yeah. And I think um, one thing that we've learned is that Trump sort of throw together as we go. Diplomacy has kind of reached the end of the road. Um, I think this probably would have gone better if the two sides had done some real diplomatic and bureaucratic depth work on this. Um, Some middle level work first had been done. You know, Trump just announced this thing a month ago. And the strategic and ideological divisions are probably just too big between the U.S. and North Korea bridge in a month. Um, So hopefully, you know, if we have a third one, which will probably happen. Um, there'll be more effort put into it so we don't have this sort of, you know, this sort of weird explosion.
0: Hmm. Professor Stathis, throw together diplomacy. Trump's team must have known this was going to happen.
2: Well, uh, I'm,
3: I've got a very cynical opinion about this. I don't think there was any, any expectation. Um, first of all, a very bad joke. It uh, uh, Well, <sighs> The big guy finally made it to Vietnam, heel spurs and all. But um, that said, uh, the U.S. audience uh, really didn't uh, expect anything to come out of this. And cynically, uh, most people here believe that uh, uh, it was uh, political theater uh, to try to take uh, the headlines away from the uh, Michael Cohen hearings.
0: Mm, I'll be asking about uh, that in a moment, yes. Go on, yeah, and that,
3: it did to a certain extent. I, I saw all the headlines this morning and the headlines this morning, uh, the failure of the talks uh, in, uh, uh, in, in Vietnam. But uh, uh, qu- quite frankly, I don't think there was any expectation that anything would happen.
0: Mm. Professor Kelly said that this is probably going to be a, a third summit. Christopher Lee, this isn't the end of it, is it?
4: No, it's not the end of it. There is going to be a third summit. There might be a fourth summit. And let's get a couple of things in, de- in depth. The Americans took with them a an agreement that could have been signed, and that would it was impossible for Kim t- to agree it. But they took it with them as a mark of so-called good faith. American uh, uh, diplomats and parts of negotiating teams have been through London, and Paris, and uh, uh, and Berlin in the past eight weeks, and they've been saying, "How far can we go on sanctions?" Now, this is asking a question which has never been asked for, because. It is not America just imposing the sanctions. It's not America that uh, uh, could ever lift them. You've got to talk to the Chinese. You've got to talk to the Japanese and the, and the British and the French and the Germans because it's a big thing, the sanctions, and we've learned this in another area about, for example, of Iran, where lifting the sanctions becomes politically, politically unsafe. There's one other thing that I think is quite important, is that um, Reagan-Gorbachev, a meeting in 1986, the big summit that was uh, going to get rid of nuclear weapons. And it didn't happen. And it didn't happen because Reagan refused to budge on, for example, Star Wars. This is, that's all this is. I don't think this was a rubbish meeting, um, whatever the, whatever the uh, uh, political theater of it that Michael describes. I think this would go on. You do not, the history of arms control, especially with a country like Korea, Um, The history of arms control isn't done in two meetings. It can take 10 years to get an arms control. And I think this is what some people in Washington and certainly everybody in North Korea understands.
0: And Professor Robert Kelly, in that light, interesting that Kim Jong-un said the North Koreans won't return to missile and warhead testing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the minimum to keep Trump showing up. I mean, Trump has really emphasized that a lot in his media appearances now, right? In part, he's sort of reducing the benchmark for success because it used to be, you know, complete, verifiably irreversible disarmament. Now Trump is saying just the test because the North Korean test ban because North Koreans have already done that. So at this point, Kim is sort of locked in and painted into a corner. Um, That's pretty good. Um, because it does mean if the North Koreans keep it for a while, right, I mean, that does mean that eventually obsolescence will become a problem for the North Korean program, but, you know, it's only a year and a half since the testing, so it's really not a great achievement now. But it keeps the Kim, you know, it keeps Kim coming back, so, I mean, it's better than, I guess, a complete breakdown, right? If they went back to testing, then Trump would really be in a box because he's emphasized that point so much.
4: And there's, there's another side of this, and that is when they were in, actually in the discussions, they were talking about a particular test site and a, a particular test program. But there is a second test site. There is a second test programme, which in fact hasn't been activated. And the Americans are not dim about this. They know it's there. And so the promise, (laughs) we will not do the testing, has to be when you get down to signing a gold pen affair, uh, it has to be which test sites you're talking about. And that's how incomplete these talks are.
0: And do you think, Robert Kelly, that uh, Kim Jong-un was a bit wrong-footed there, that he didn't know the Americans knew so much about the test sites that they, they revealed in that meeting?
2: Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me because this has been an issue with the North Koreans in the past, right? When we caught them cheating um, about 18 years ago um, on the agreed framework with the uranium, um, they were really surprised at that time, too. They didn't realize just how much the Americans could do and see how much the IAE could see and and stuff like that. So I wouldn't be surprised, um, and that's probably why. It looks like Kim is the one who sort of left, and that's probably why, right? They just weren't ready to, uh, to make the large concessions. My guess is they want to keep weapons, but they're willing to move on production facilities, shut them down they actually don't want to roll back what they've got
0: all right professor Michael Stathis you mentioned Donald Trump's former attorney Michael Cohen who was telling a congressional hearing on Wednesday that Trump was dishonest and much worse do you think the timing of that um, which coincided with the Hanoi summit was coincidence or conspiracy
3: oh I don't think it was conspiracy this was uh, uh, in the planning for a long time now of course so was the summit Uh, It's unfortunate that they coincided, but Trump's uh, comment uh, blaming the Democrats uh, uh, for their timing on this, I think, was uh, uh, nonsense. Uh, uh, But it was hanging over his head, Uh, and uh, the other thing is uh, Kim Jong-un knew that. Uh, He knew that Trump was coming into this uh, uh, meeting. Uh, needing a, uh, a big win, uh, which I said on the last program. And uh, in this meeting, Kim had all, uh, uh, had all of the, no pun intended, Trump cards. Uh, he could play, uh, play it along knowing that uh, Trump was at a great political disadvantage uh, uh, in, in this meeting. But I think Chris is absolutely right. These things take time. Um, uh, uh, President Trump may be history. Before there is an agreement uh, with North Korea on uh, ending their nuclear programs. But we all have to keep in mind this is all North Korea has. They do not have an economy, Uh, they do not have political clout. Uh, uh, Missiles and uh, nuclear weapons are basically the only thing that makes them relevant. If those weapons didn't exist, there would have been no talks with Kim, there there would have been no need for talks Mm. with Kim.
0: Well, on that note, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you for your time today. That's Professor Michael Stathis and Professor Robert Kelly. You Still to come, will American bombers be forced off Diego Garcia? And what can the Red Cross teach Army officer cadets? Sit Rep. Britain, America and the UN are urging India and Pakistan to avoid further military clashes after Pakistan captured an Indian pilot after shooting down his plane. That followed an airstrike by India against what it said was a militant camp in Pakistan in retaliation for a suicide bombing in Kashmir two weeks ago. The Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt insists the dangers of escalating tensions between the two countries should not be underestimated.
5: We're doing everything we can with our allies, uh, with other members of the security Security Council, talking to countries like the United States and China. It's a full, round-the-clock diplomatic effort.
0: Well, Dr. Dan Plesh is from SOAS at the University of London. Hello to you today. Now, this conflict has been going on since 1947, when Kashmir, a mainly Muslim state, was not allowed to join Pakistan at independence, and Kashmir became jointly ruled by India and Pakistan. Why has nobody managed to find a solution?
5: Well, political will is the, uh, is the short answer, and very quickly, elites and publics in both sides have fed into uh, a, a mutually supporting uh, confrontation, as so often happens. But I think it's important to link our analysis of India and Pakistan with the uh, previous discussion about Korea, and the Foreign Secretary's remarks, quote-unquote, we're doing all we can. Well, as a Security Council member, Britain has a legal obligation under Article 26 of the Charter to work to produce a global system to regulate armaments. Nowadays, we have a global system on climate, the the Paris Accords. We have no system uh, even attempting to regulate armaments uh, globally, and that is why we look at these brush fire proliferations in Korea, in uh, Iran between uh, America and Russia over INF, uh, in India and Pakistan, because there is no context. So it isn't true to say we're doing all we can. We have no international effort at weapons control, and that's what's needed if we're not to see this proliferation of individual brush fires turn into something very much greater indeed.
0: Yes, and on that note, they're both nuclear powers. How great a risk is there of that ever ending in something more serious.
5: Well, it's useful you use the word ever. Uh, Against the span of South Asian history, of uh, Pakistani, Indian cultural history over hundreds of years, you've got to say that introducing nuclear weapons into any of those confrontations hundreds of years ago, it's ridiculous, utopian to think that you can have nuclear weapons forever and they're not being used. Humanity, uh, military forces are not like that. Either by accident or intent, they end up being used. In the immediate situation, what we are seeing in both Korea and in the subcontinent are political elites wrestling with the two great forces, the traditional uh, old fashioned nationalism and military dynamics, against the existential reality. the only way to win is not to play and that interplay in global politics is the most important issue of our time and it's rarely brought to the fore and frankly we admire our armed forces but we have to do all we can to make sure that we only use them as rarely as possible and to reduce these global risks and at the moment there is no international effort in that direction. Here with some diplomatic colleagues, we have a project, Scrap Weapons, which is intent on doing exactly that.
0: With well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee, is listening to this. He's, he's with me in the studio here, Christopher. I tell, you
4: know, know. I tell you, it's, it's, it's a
0: curious, um,
4: curious angle into this. I was talking to a couple of people a few weeks ago when it looked like happening after the, after the cause for this recent conflict, and that was the killing of some Indian soldiers by apparently Parke Stanis, um, Trump has no interest in what's going on he was saying to me in the State Department there is a a sort of thought that if you've got problems problematic areas it's quite good if there is a bit of a regional fight going on as well because it it keeps them tied up in what's going on. That's a cynical view, but that was, that was the view. The other side of it, Trump has no interest because it doesn't actually bother him. He's not really interested in, 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 in Pakistan, um, especially with its relations with other insurgents and terrorist groups that sometimes sort of lodge in Pakistan. He's got no great interest in India uh, uh, at all, unlike, say, for example, President, late pres, uh, President Clinton and also Condoleezza Rice, who was Secretary of State, who went to. Uh, both sides and said let's get an agreement on this. Trump would not bother to do that.
0: Dr. Dan Plesch, what do you think will happen next in this?
5: Well in my crystal ball there's two options. One is that uh, the Modi government uh, don't accept the de-escalation or at least accept it with uh, the release of the Indian pilot by Pakistan, by Imran Khan. Uh, or as they're starting to do crow that this shows Pakistani weakness and further inflame the situation but uh, Chris is quite right uh, There is a the, the, when the major powers uh, lose interest in disciplining the lesser powers then the lesser powers either behave irresponsibly or they have to learn themselves to act responsibly and in this way it, nuclear weapons in some ways provide a disciplining factor but the But the underlying drive of that is the insecurity, the fundamental existential threat posed by their existence. And if we look at what helped with a uh, a soft landing of the Cold War in Europe, it was very detailed uh, agreements about managing conventional armaments. And what we're suggesting and talking to people about is to use similar uh, mechanisms for controlling conventional arms in the Indian subcontinent and elsewhere and as these recurrence of crises where lower level actors, terrorists, have the ability to force uh, states into international crises, those states begin to see that actually they have an interest in, in formalizing uh, controls on their militaries to is, stop things getting out of hand like this.
4: There's only one way to fix this, and that is get India, uh, Pakistan, and probably the United Nations as a, as a, as a contributing force. To agree that only one country, either uh, India or Pakistan, um, uh, governs Kashmir or you make it an international state?
0: Gentlemen, stay with us because the UK should end its control of the Chagos Islands in the Indian Ocean as rapidly as possible. So says the UN's International Court of Justice in The Hague. But does anyone care what they say? The problem is there's a massive American military base on one of the islands, Diego Garcia. Uh, Christopher, remind us about the Chagos Islands and right. why it's a, a UN issue.
4: Yeah, okay, Chagos Islands are up in the north part of the Indian Ocean, etc. Back in the 1960s, it was quite necessary. Necessary for uh, the Americans who wanted to deploy uh, a large force of what then would B-52s, the other B-52s uh, and they needed a base, and they needed a base that was safe and the target then was probably Russian, Russian targets and it was a nuclear base. There's another side of this uh, and that is that the, the British at that same time were negotiating with the Americans to get some, uh, some development of their Polaris missile nuclear missile uh, 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 program done and so the british who were ruling it and there was a lieutenant commander navy there was the postmaster that was as thin as it was said okay you can have it uh, and we, we will lease it out to you mm. that was then all the chagons or the chagones were, were taken off the island the people that lived there and had lived there for hundreds of years were taken off the island sent down to mauritius and say it's not yours anymore
0: mm, dan plesh will the americans and the british do anything more than bin that un recommendation the americans need that base don't they
5: well need is always relative There's ways around it if it goes back to Mauritius then the Americans no doubt would uh, try to do a deal with Mauritius uh, if the Chinese don't jump in first you've only got to look at uh, a tiny country like Djibouti where they're renting out real estate to for military bases which are more or less lined up like semi-detached houses um, down the coast in, uh, there so uh, even returning it to Mauritius wouldn't uh, necessarily end American involvement. but I think the key issue here is sometimes you know the rule of law uh, goes against you uh, brackets that's the point. Uh, and if you're a country like Britain, we you know with what 60 odd million people uh, on a planet of seven billion, uh, you have to think, well, can we get away with pretending that the world is like 1890? And everybody does what a British gunboat says or do we actually realize our actual position in the world and that it's important to our long-term future and security to uphold the rule of law and in that case our strategic interest is to support the ICJ uh, because it's in the interest of our country long term strategically uh, even if uh, we have a problem as a result um, with the United States.
0: And on that thought, we'll leave it today. Dr. Dan Plesh, thank you very much for your time. Officer cadets at Sandhurst have to learn about what to do in a humanitarian crisis and how to work with the organisations who deal with them. The International Committee of the Red Cross has been on a training exercise with cadets to show them how to operate in conflict, how they operate in conflict zones. Well, Carla Prater went along to see what happens.
6: At Longmoor Camp in Hampshire, army officer cadets are on exercise Templar's Triumph. They have just seven weeks of training left before they commission at Sandhurst. But there's still lots to learn. For this exercise, the International Committee of the Red Cross has been invited to show what they do. Retired Brigadier Ian Macleod has been working for the organisation for the past 20 years.
1: We're trying to get across what we are. We are a neutral, independent, impartial humanitarian organisation whose role is to protect and assist the victims of conflict and other situations of violence. So if they have some knowledge of our organisation, understand us and how we operate, then that might make our job easier and safer in the field if if we come across UK forces.
6: Taking part in the exercise scenario in can give them a taste of humanitarian operations. Officer Cadet James Donovan says it makes it much more realistic. We're going on to hopefully commission as officers and we will be interacting with these organisations and to have a chance to interact with them now before we get into the big wider army is invaluable to us. The ICRC operates unarmed. Its ability to report on security issues, welfare and detainees depends on relationships and diplomacy. Starting to build that relationship early on is the first important step.
0: Well, in Carla's report there we heard from retired Brigadier Ian McLeod who works for the International Committee for the Red Cross and he joins us now to tell us more. Good to speak to you today. Explain to us what happens on these exercises.
1: Well, as the preamble said, what we're trying to do is role-play what we do to give them some idea of the interaction they might have with our organization. But at the same time, there's a whole generation of future officers of the British Army who will understand a little bit about us. So at some time in the future, they come across us, then perhaps they'll remember this exercise and and a little bit about what we do, then make that interaction easier in what might be a very stressful situation.
0: And how much of a difference does it make in conflict situations? Can you give us an example of what you've experienced?
1: Well, to be understood, to to get in, we are very victim-oriented. We are there to protect and assist the victims of the conflict. So we need access. We need to get to them and we need therefore to be understood by all the players on the field uh, all the arms carriers and i say arms carriers because um, not everybody on the in the conflict areas now are are government armed forces a lot of them are the non-state actors the insurgents and so on so we need them to understand what we do we aim to be transparent and predictable and if they understand that, then we can get in safely to help the victims of the conflict.
0: Mm, Does the ICRC do this in other countries and with other militaries? I mean, you mentioned non-state actors as well.
1: Yes, I mean, um, the ICRC has something like uh, just over 80 delegations worldwide, covering almost every conflict that's going on today. And there are a network of about 40, what we call armed forces delegates, doing this sort of work. And in the 20 years I've been with the ICRC, I've worked in over 40 countries and with uh, armed groups, um, rebel forces, uh, also international forces such as the UN and the African Union forces. And we keep on disseminating what we do to get them to understand us that we need to get in to help people.
0: Christopher Lee. The
4: modern army. In recent times has found itself far more than ever before uh, fighting in regions and in conflicts where other agencies refugee agencies Red Cross etc are also traveling and that means a totally new perspective what you might be called upon to do and that's what's important about this meeting
0: all right we'll leave it there for today Brigadier In Macleod. thank you very much for your time Now, there's a story in The Times today about a former British soldier who told his optician to put his military service on his medical notes. As it's recommended under the as it's recommended under the Armed Forces Covenant, but he says she refused and said, "Why should you have that after invading countries around the world and killing innocent people?" Well, she's now been suspended by the company Specsavers, who says the alleged comments don't represent their views. Well, let's talk to Dr. Hugh Milroy, who is the CEO of the charity Veterans Age Aid. What do you make of this story? do, do you hear similar things yourself?
7: Uh, well, I, th- I think we'll get a very confused picture uh, uh, across the nation. Um, and and I, lay the, the, I lay the blame for this really uh, at the feet of politicians in Parliament. For a very long time, I've been advocating that we need a national debate about who veterans are in the 21st century. Because, you know, for too long we've been driven by you know, particularly media reports of heroes, villains, and victims, and, and all getting confused about. Who veterans are and what are the what are the rights are, and certainly, you know, the two and a half million or so veterans in the country. I mean, I, I'm a veteran, and I don't really know what my rights are or what, what what to expect from society.
0: So, at the root of this is a misunderstanding about the, what the Armed Forces Covenant can do from both sides: the veteran side and the provider side.
7: Yeah, I, I I think that'd be a very a, a very astute way of looking at it. Um, and 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 the the, the worrying thing for me. Uh, and the front line here at veteran's aid is the whole idea of what does that mean to the people walking through our door you know have we have we Have we created an exaggerated sense of entitlement which government is struggling very hard. To, um, to, 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 to respond to. And, um, you know, certainly, I mean, I've no idea what happened in this particular instance, um, and, and no one will uh, unless they were there. But I really do worry about, you know, where this is all going. Uh, and, and we probably do need a grown up debate Uh, at national level, not just amongst veterans, but at national levels, um, saying who are veterans in 21st century Britain.
0: Mm. And do you believe, assuming veterans are all ex-service personnel, um, do you believe they're getting special treatment at the moment and are they entitled, should they be getting it?
7: Well, I certainly think that, um, you know, from my perspective, again, as a veteran, uh, saying that if if, uh, personnel had injuries relating to their military service then that should be cared for by uh, the government. It should be very, very clear that that's what happens.
0: Christopher.
4: I'm just wondering, has the government ever laid down, because you don't need a, a national debate to go further than we go for the normal things we have to understand, and it's this. Why can't government, one of its committees, simply say a veteran should be seen by a doctor within 48 hours? A veteran, A veteran with whatever the class injuries he or she has ought to have this is government not got a piece of paper which says that and that does it because you don't have to be very bright to work out what a veteran needs and then the second part of it comes doesn't it what about a policeman 30 years in
7: well absolutely uh but let's go back to the first bit you know i'm not yeah i'm not i'm not an idiot and i still don't understand after 25 years in dealing with veterans what it is they need so, so the idea, and one of the things I here in Veterans Aid is the sheer complexity of the issues we deal with. You know, it's very far from straightforward. Certainly we do have, but when it comes to health issues, I think it should be very clear. In fact, for a long time I've been, been advocating the whole idea of a Veterans Charter. Very, very simple. You go along, and uh, if it's to do with your military service, you're entitled to this and that. And, uh, and certainly, I mean, you might know more than I do, but I've never seen anything like that.
0: Dr. Hugh Milroy, thank you. Well, Christopher, um, let's go back to that great summit in, well, that interesting summit in Hanoi between Kim Jong-un and President Trump. You have a slightly different overview of it, don't you?
4: Actually, I have. Kim and Trump, I mean, these are the stars, and this is how it works out in my mind. I see Kim, President Kim, arriving in this most magnificent antique train, which is what happened. Huge train that goes on for, goes on for many coaches. How,
0: how long would the journey have been?
4: Oh, I don't I mean, They have to go all the way around the world because it's going through China uh, and they have to transfer the rails as well and it's about sort of, I don't know, 1, 12, 1,300 miles or, or even more. Anyway, there it is and he, he arrives very slowly, sedately, gets out with a, with a fag on you know, and sort of stands around a bit and people sort of say hello. He hasn't got Air Force One he hasn't got an aeroplane that's m- uh, above grade 1. And what happens Trump turns up his jacket is t- his jacket is done up. This is the first time on a national scale he's doing his jacket up. He's turning himself into a president. We have two images here. Two images of two chaps shaking hands and they on the same deal. I think it's marvelous. Watch watch for Kim the tank engine in future. He's going to be around.
0: That's it for this week. Join us again same time next week but from me Kate Jebo. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now.